Jersey. This is the Sopranos podcast, episode six, Mandolin. This psychiatry shit. Apparently, what you're feeling is not what you're feeling, and what you're not feeling is your real agenda. That quote was spoken by our main character Tony Soprano to his wife Carmela in a lovely scene by the pool. We are doing episode six of season one, Pax Soprano, written by Frank Renzulli and directed by Alan Taylor. Guys, we are uh, here for this wonderful episode. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And it's Pax D'Amato here at the the house. It's a rainy day. My basement is flooded. uh, We're in the middle of a tropical storm, but we are here nonetheless and what an episode to gather for. Pack Soprano, guys. Uh, you know how we do this. Initial thoughts and reactions go around the table here. Paul? Uh, it's great to be here. Um, the, the first connection that I bring up in this episode has to do with, of course, the title Pax Soprano uh, is a derivative, I guess, of Pax Romana mm-hmm. and Pax Mafiosa. This reference to, I guess, old Italian gangster governments and groups and the way that they achieve relative peace and prosperity. Wherever, if you're an old empire or a gangster crew, there's going to be extortion, there's going to be violence, there's going to be some kind of upheaval. Uh, but you want things relatively good, right? You want to mm-hmm. live in those good times. Um, and so for me, a couple of issues come up. One is definitely money. There's money all over this episode. People are talking about it. They're haggling over it. Their Money is changing hands. Um, and... You always want things to be a bit better, right? Even when Mikey Palmisi pays the guys off to tell the lie about the guy's death at the bridge, his underling, as they walk out, is saying, how much did you give him? They're still haggling over money. Um, So that's an issue that comes up. Another issue uh, having to do with the, quote, good times is that this episode really seemed to me ambitious in where they went with the characters, specifically Tony, looking for human happiness Mm. and looking for meaning in their life. And this is something The Sopranos does very well. And the writer's room, the show became, I think, ambitious because the writers pushed it in that direction and allowed it to be. I don't believe in it. It's it's a mistake or or just a trivial element in the episode that there's more therapy sessions in here than any other episode. Mm. Average two or three. In an episode here, it's like seven. Mm. Keeps going back, keeps going back. Now, there are things that pull him in that direction. The issue with his diminished libido, his feelings for Melfi. But I think we're coming back to it because we are returning to the question of what is the good life? How do you live it? Um, How is it complicated by your lies and obfuscations? And the cruelty of this mad world that's moving too fast. As Chase said, is the world so cruel that even a gangster needs help? Um, so all those things come together um, to make for an episode, once again, with deeply serious themes that I laughed my ass off watching, and I only wished that I was with you guys so we could watch yeah. it together. Oh, yeah. Very funny episode. I mean, Very. Jordan, thoughts on Pax Soprano, initial reactions? For me, the focus here was on the women in Tony's life yeah. who complicate matters for him, all in different ways, but also in... in Dramatically the same way. One of my notes, just a raw thought here, is Tony just doesn't have it with women. He really doesn't. Not in this episode. (laughs) So we get uh, varied complications between Carmella, Irina, of course, Livia, 
but a, a really Dr. Melfi uh, being the one that we're going to be, I assume, focused on the most in this episode, I was also for the first time really keenly aware of the passage of time in this episode. Mm. I think because, as Paul said, we visit therapy so much, we know he goes once a week on a Tuesday. These episodes, I think we often get lost in, oh, is this a day? Is this a couple of hours? This was an episode where we were seeing what is clearly the passage of a few weeks and how things matriculate from small events becoming larger events and how Tony is ultimately trapped in this web of, I guess we could say, femininity mm. or the feminine mystique for, uh, you know, long passages in his life. These are, these are long-term situations. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. And, this, and, and, you know, for me, this episode is just, it raises the question, both from the title and just from the things that happen in it. It's a very, much like, our la much like college, it's a very dual episode. There's two things happening. It's Tony's family and Tony's family family. And it's two plot threads, and that's really it. Um, so it begs the question, what does happiness look like for The Sopranos? The, a big key factor in this has to do with uh, there's, there's side effects mm. happening. There's a lot of side effects. Tony reflects it directly when he talks about the Prozac, taking the Prozac presumably has been a victory. Yeah. He's done better. He's more functional. He's able to have at least get up and go to deal with life's problems. And at least at this point, we're led to believe the panic attacks are diminished. Mm -hmm. That was the immediate reason that brought him to Melfi in the first place. Right, right. Side effect of Prozac, um, a diminished libido. It happens. It can be very distressing. Um, I imagine it's particularly distressing for a man of Tony's appetites, mm. if you will. And appetite is not a superfluous element here. It's not a mistake that they're talking about food this whole time. It's an Italian show, okay. Um, Irina's affectionate nickname for Tony's member is Tony's cannoli. Um, <laughs> you always want to be eating good in good times, and that's another that's an, that's an Italian thing for and sure. It's also <laughs> to your point. There are lots of scenes that suggest oral sex too, and so it's not just calling it a cannoli. It's you know Irina's trying to go down on him, and and the dream that he has where Melf where he looks down. He, we think it's Irina because the accent, and then it pops up and it's Melfi. Just a lot of great imagery there. Uh, there's a there's that's a tribute to Alan Taylor, who um, I think so this good. was his first episode. He did a terrific job with it, and yeah, I mean it's a, it's a very good question. What does happiness mean? Because maybe because there are side effects. The side effect of the Prozac situation is Tony's diminished libido. The side effect of the gangster story is Junior's inflamed bravado, mm. and it's going to become a problem. So, is I, is the question of happiness? belied by the the myriad lies and machinations of this world and or the cruelty of modern life in work-life balance and all the rest of it happiness in one's romantic life this underlines the importance of what jordan was talking about um the relationship to women it doesn't matter how powerful you are you still want to be i think romantically validated and it's tough particularly in the situation tony finds himself in mm. so i think it's very hard for tony to find happiness and satisfaction so much of this show is him kind of being on the verge of having happiness or thinking he's truly happy and just having that escape him mm. i guess for tony a man of of such appetites it's really hard for him to ever acknowledge satisfaction or happiness within himself. For him, it's always around the corner, mm -hmm. and he can never really chase it down. Just speaking to what Paul said about the women in his life, you know, uh, he can't seem to achieve a state of balance with any of them, 
So now when there's a new woman that has entered his life, Melfi, who has kind of opened the door to all these new things that he never thought was possible, he thinks finally this is the answer. But of course that is not the answer either. Mm. I want to talk for a second about uh, the writer here, Frank Renzulli. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, I, uh, the little bit about Frank Renzulli that I know is he also serves as uh, some kind of supervisor in, uh, on the show in these earlier seasons. Frank Renzulli is the guy on the writing staff that grew up around wise guys. So he's kind of like the guy who is in the know there. And so it's, it, it's no surprise to me that his first among many episodes that he will go on to write in some really surprising episodes, considering, you know, that background... Um, but it, it's not a surprise to me that this episode was hilarious because oh, wise guys, so funny. The, the one thing that anybody, even like, you know, hardcore FBI agents say about wise guys is they're charming, they're funny. They, you know, um, this episode, I was laughing from beginning to end. There's just so much funny shit. We start with John Hurt. I mean, that can start any episode uh, with that, <laughs> with Mackenzie, and we talked at, at length about him last time. But, uh, yeah, uh, any thoughts on the use of humor in this episode? Funny moments you really that really stood out to you or, or that informed the drama? It stood out to me how much Dr. Melfi laughs at Tony, we might even say inappropriately, yeah, yeah, in his therapy sessions. And unfortunately, he takes that as her almost flirting back at him mm, yeah. and kind of giving off that signal. And this might not be a popular opinion, but I, I think Tony has the correct interpretation there on a few of those instances. I think there is a playfulness between them that could be interpreted as flirtation. We've already talked about in past episodes how the um, more sort of regimented structure of therapy has broken down between these two, and a little bit, it is unclear occasionally who's in control, who is the patient, who is the doctor, and if their relationship kind of goes beyond what a patient typically has with their therapist. I think it does. I think Tony does use humor to break down her defenses. It's mm. a really good point, um, and perhaps also questioning that balance of therapy and who's in therapy with whom Tony reverses the format in one of the scenes he asks her a very intriguing question why do you have me yeah. as a patient why would most legit people I know would go a hundred yards out of their way not to make eye contact with me there's and, no answer by the way but well, I was you, just say, you don't flinch yes no, that, that's a great line that's a great moment and it's very telling uh, you know those of us who also understand the way drama is constructed, that the scene ends after that statement. We don't get an answer. Right. Which suggests that Melfi has a deeper answer than perhaps we are yet to understand. Um, a brilliant way that The Sopranos has and will continue to build tension in subtle ways is they will end scenes with, instead of maybe the more... A traditional cliffhanger they end it with a question or a bit of confusion that forwards you to the next step mm. um, and that's that's an example that's an early example of I think that's smart writing yeah he makes her laugh early on I said it was this that was cute like there, there's kind of a little scene um, where they he first brings the coffee and then he really makes her laugh with that line uh, hey I don't let anybody wag their finger in my face right prostate exam. right prostate exam yeah um, but it's just hit after hit I, uh, this is bad because it's it's a scene of domestic violence but when he calls arena a communist cunt I started laughing uh, it, there's, there's well a, it is funny it's played for humor yeah in that yeah, scene they're for sure kind of play slapping at each other and yeah I think he know. calls her a fucking refugee yeah I mean and there, there, there's something there's also something happening in their attempt at a dialogue 
Jordan, I think, used the term feminine mystique. Mm. Um, Melfi herself has a good insight saying that by coming clean with an Italian woman, he could be dialoguing with the women in his life. His dialogue with Irina does not go well. Could be an age difference, could be a language barrier. She, um, she gets very irritated with him quick, and he's not. He's in too sensitive a place to respond with anything even resembling maturity. Right. We also need to address the transactional nature uh, that Tony has with women. Um, he does throw money at Irina at one point. Ooh, that's uh, Livia, he always brings an offering, typically of food, macaroons. I think we had another kind of, some kind of pastry he brought her. Um, with uh, Carmela, uh, it's this, this issue of the furniture that she is buying and his unwillingness to give that up. Uh, maybe that's, that's why she is so resentful, because the transactional nature of their relationship has broken down to an extent. Mm -hmm. And now even Melfi, we've got to talk about the coffee situation. Mm. What's up with coffee? Why is he getting her coffee? Yeah. You know, uh, this is his secret way of just kind of saying, uh, I can provide, but he can't be as overt as he is with Irina you know, or with, uh, you know, maybe his mother or someone like that. Oh, that's really amazing. I, didn't even, I hadn't even thought about that. But, yeah, these are all, he's engaging in these monetary transactions with all of these women just in, in, in different ways. Because in his mind, he has to provide for all these people. His undercurrent always, always has to be, look what I can give you. Mm. Uh, this is something that I love. Fixes her car without her asking for yeah. it. Steals her car and fixes her car. Uh, uh, and there's some. I mean, that scene where that comes out is one of the best acted scenes in the show. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, talk about how well this show formats the suggestive stuff. He's having trouble with his libido, and he needs something quote to give him a jump start. He replaces her. <laughs> oh he replaces wow. her starter. Um, <laughs> so the, um, the, the imagery here is great, as Jordan also just laid out. And it occurs to me, again, these are the good times, or it's the attempt to create the good times and live in them, and here's how Tony approaches it in his romantic life. He tries to create it, essentially, in a theater of erotica with Irina. He tries to come clean to Melfi and profess his love to her. He is completely honest with neither of them and excludes his wife from his romantic intention essentially altogether. Both gambits fail, and he goes back to his wife. That's what passes for the good times on this show. Um, <laughs> and that scene ends with a pretty ominous shot of the empty pool yeah, in wow. front of them. Yeah. So The pool, I mean, it all... The pool, the ducks, That's those are all recurring images and, and themes that the show will keep coming back to over and over again. If we could just aim at something for a moment. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're talking about Dr. Melfi as being now the object of Tony's love and affection. He, he has determined it is love. Uh, do we think it is love? I was has ask has that. he been fooled into thinking he's in love with her? Is it, as she says, a byproduct or a side effect of the progress that they have made in therapy? I, I don't know. This is very complicated. I think she wishes it was. Oh, right. <laughs> I think nine times out of ten that's what it would be. Uh, but when Tony says, I love you, I buy it. And he lied. This is a guy who lies a lot. This is a guy who is lying constantly. And uh, I I don't know. I, I, I buy that he at least believes it. Um, whether it's a by... I mean, she is... I did write at one point, I have one of my notes, is Melfi is the only woman that isn't exhibiting anger or, out, in Arena's case, outright cruelty toward him throwing the candle at him. And, and so he is get he is getting in, in, in Melfi the one thing that he is not getting from any of the other women in his life. So, but I don't think that that alone is reason enough for him to be fooled. I think that that might be legitimate love. What do you think, Paul? 
I think the the feelings are certainly legitimate. It's hard again because I have to be honest with you guys. I took I took notes on this episode. There were times specifically with the scenes with women, and this might relate to what Jordan mentioned early on in the episode, there's something in the feminine mystique. I was having trouble keeping track of Tony's lies mm. with the women. Sure. sure. Oh, the, they're constant. The lies with the gangsters are like, oh yeah, he's doing that. The, with the, I was like, wait, wait, which one is this? Yeah. Um, how does he do this? And he is, in a, he is in a sensitive place, but as you guys said, I think it's never, it's never simple on The Sopranos. It's never cut and dry. Mm. It's one of the joys of the show that we can dig into it. I think there is something to his feelings, just as I do think it's true that it is a byproduct of therapy, that I've had women therapists, broad, generic, supportive. And if you're in a place like that, I can totally see how you fall for someone like that. But the question lingers. Why do you have me as a patient? And something that I wondered about, again, maybe relating to this question of deeper happiness and meaning in life and meaningful work, is Melfi in some way communing with what Tony said in the first episode, that the best is gone and that some zest has gone out of our life? And with all due respect to this beautiful state, are most of the people who go to therapy in North Jersey kind of boring, Mm. frankly? And (laughs) Melfi's docket is filled with... Uh, you know, sad businessmen, uh, frustrated... Rand- Randalls, yeah. Yeah, right, mm. frustrated housewives. <laughs> right. Um, and, and then Tony Soprano comes in. Of course it's fascinating. Of course it's also, it's a challenge. How are you going to get this guy to open up? Mm. This is one of the tough parts about doing the podcast, having seen the whole series as many times, because we Spoiler do have more... We do have sure. more. Yeah, I'm not going to spoil anything. We do have more insight later in the show as to Melfi's motivations for be- treating Tony and her feelings toward Tony, and, and so we do get more insight on that, but based on what we have now already, it's a hard question to answer because we have that knowledge, but based on what we know from these six episodes, what is it, uh, and Paul, you, you basically gave your thoughts on this, but what... Uh, what is it that drives Melfi to treat Tony and to be intrigued by this situation, especially after she this episode and um, I believe it was uh, Meadowlands where Vin McKazian beats the shit out of Randall. She's starting to get little hints that this is bleeding into her life in some ways that are a little scary or dangerous. And I think it's the Italian thing. There's definitely a connection there. I guess what I'm trying to ask with the six-episode information we have, is there some sort of mutual attraction here? I think there is. I, I think some people would argue against this, and maybe being you know just a straight guy, I just see it this way, and really looking at things through Tony's perspective and how she responds. I think if a woman was responding to me like that, I would think that maybe she was at least flirting. Mm. Not that maybe she loves me, but mm. that she's not um, uh, adverse to my... Uh, uh, attraction to her. Sure. Uh, I think Melfi is a really, as Paul said, really insightful character uh, that has good insight on him, and he's not used to that. Mm. So in his mind, she already knows what he's yeah. going to tell her. She already knows that um, uh, he loves her. Uh, what he tells her can't possibly be, you know, somehow new information. And from Tony's perspective, and part of the reason why we discussed um, this episode title as Mandolin. His love for her comes from a place of being that it's something that he doesn't have in his life. The other women in his life are yelling at him. They're angry at him. They are caustic. They yeah. want something from him. Yeah. You know, uh, the quote in the episode is, you're gentle, not loud. 
sweet sounding, like a mandolin. Mm. We could not use those sentences to describe Carmela, Livia, Meadow, Irina, yeah. no one else. Only Dr. Melfi fits that spot for him. Mm. Dr. Melfi has also done something to Tony. We talked about this a lot in the Frankenstein episode, but Melfi has created something new in Tony in some way. She has opened a door that was never supposed to be open. There's a lot of good things inside that door. There are a lot of bad things too. And I think he can't help but stand at that threshold and gaze in wonder at it. Yeah. And that is her. Yeah. And and that's reciprocated to some degree. I feel like just common sense would suggest that this guy stole her car. That means he knows where you live. Yeah. I feel like if there weren't some kind of affection or soft spot for him in her heart, that would have been it when right. that comes out. Oh, yeah. You stole my car? I feel like 99 patients out of 100 that walked into her office, that would be the end. She'd be like, you need to go see someone else. Probably 100 of 100. He's a once-in-a-lifetime yeah. patient. Yeah, yeah okay. But actually, yes, you're, you're completely correct. Wise guys don't go to therapy. So <laughs> There's another moment like that to relate to what you're both saying where – it's one of the many therapy scenes, but it's another one where it seems as though he has either crossed this line or he's come perilously close. And it seems as though there's a moment when Melfi thinks things over, sort of reorganizes herself back to th- back to like the cordial doctor mode, and she says, "All right, I'll see you next week." And she's back to it. She's like, "Yeah, we're in it." And I was like, "Isn't that interesting? Like maybe that was the moment where another doctor would say, "Nah, gotta gotta put put my chips in. I'm done. Mm. Um, not her." And so again, and that'll that'll lead us to the next step and the next step. Mm. And in, in reference to Vin McCasian, who you've mentioned before, we know from Vin tailing Melfi, and, and not really sure why he's tailing her, that she doesn't really have a lot going on in her life. Yeah. Tony Soprano kind of is the thing she has going on in her life. She has her job. Her job is the beginning, middle, and end of her whole life right now. We do not find out anything about Melfi's family situation until much later in the show. Right now, this is all we've got to go on. We know that this woman gets up early, stays at work super late, reads a little bit, and goes to bed. She has a little bit of a romance going with the most boring possible person. Uh, Otherwise, it's got to be all Tony Soprano. I think when he tells her, I dream about you, I think about you all the time, I think she's dreaming about him too. It might not be sexually, it might not be romantically, but he looms large in her life, absolutely. Mm. Wow, great stuff. Let's uh, steer this a little bit into Tony and Carmela, and then I want to get on to the other family for a bit. But um, there's some really wonderful Carmela scenes here. Uh, and, um, you know, we've touched on a little bit on some of the transactional nature, the fact that she feels kind of, as she as she says, skeeved by him and, and feels distant, and uh, they're having problems in the bedroom. <laughs> I laughed, but I also felt for her when he snaps out of bed after the sex dream looks at carmella and she's you like, want you sex, want sex? <laughs> she's like as angry as she is at him she's like excited for that potential spark and then he sees that it's carmella not melfi and goes no go back to sleep <laughs> <laughs> so sad i feel so this is one of those episodes i really feel for carmella um it's the running undercurrent in their relationship is that these two don't fuck yeah you know not enough well yeah and and I felt for her again. I can't help it. Uh, I, I wrote everything about this Father Phil scene makes me feel terrible. <laughs> uh, just the stuff he says to her. Uh, we reap what we sow. Divorce is for the weak. There is nothing he says to her that is affirming, aspirational, or even what I would call helpful, really. Um, but this is her outlet, and he... 
the Catholic guilt thing works for her because she kind of comes around and, and makes it about her instead of Tony. And I don't know. Any Which thoughts is, on this Father Phil scene and how that kind of mirrors other power relationships we see in this episode? Well, and it mirrors other uh, scenes in which Tony, for example, goes to see someone, an advisor, who's, yeah. uh, as we've pointed out, much more comforting. Um <laughs> The, the I agree. I, the, Edie Falco really took a step in this episode for me. It was great scene work. Um, I could actually be in a minority on this, but I had this f- odd feeling in the first scene that we have with Johnny Sack, when he comes in, oh, I'm sure we'll talk about that oh, yeah. actor. Yeah, first appearance. Yeah. Um, and Tony has excused himself from this anniversary dinner for a few minutes. He comes back. Carmela's pretty upset. I have to admit I felt for Tony in that yes. he's... It's a lot, and his wife is crying in public, and it's hard for a male to deal with that. I feel for both of them. They're both working through some really difficult stuff. Sure. Um, a thing that comes up here, and I want to point it out because it's going to come up again. It's all over The Sopranos. Characters do not know how wrong they are in a lot of cases, mm. or how right they are. Carmela digging at Tony about how you disappeared for ten minutes, to me, though she, uh, she's going through a lot, to me seemed a little picayune. Mm. However... The larger accusation that she's making, that Tony is not present in their marriage, well, we know that Carmela doesn't know how right she is. Right. Because he's emotionally betraying her, like in every effing beat of this episode. Yeah. So there's that kind of quality to these scenes that kind of make my head spin, because even still, when they arrive home in the car and Tony's like talking to her, it's not getting through, I still felt for him as well. The other big thing that came up in that storyline was certainly her buying a lot of furniture. Um, because we're also going to mark that the Sopranos house has one stylistic thread. We have stuff. That's it. That there's no, there's nothing yeah. that binds their the imagery or the iconography of their house together. It's stuff. And we see, another reason that I feel for Carmela is that she's treating depression hmm. in this episode. Yes. It's just through different means. Yeah. It's buying this, addressing, as she calls it, the thirst. Again, you want to be eating good if the times are good. You want to get the, the biscotti from Ferrara, you got to get the magnet for the good coffee, and Carmela is speaking in terms of hunger and thirst. It's, an, it's a thing. It's a human need. I was so surprised, actually, in her conversation with Father Phil to hear her acknowledge that she knows and is, in fact, pretty comfortable with Tony's affairs. Yeah. The man has appetites, you know, how men are. Uh, you know, she, she doesn't seem to care about uh, maybe she knows about Irina, maybe not Irina specifically, but she knows that the Gumas are out there. Yeah. You know, and she doesn't seem to care about that, but Melfi bothers her. And we understand why, because this is a more this is a, a woman of substance, someone yeah. who's more significant, someone who can act as a healer in his life, someone who's fulfilling a role that she wants. But I was surprised that someone as occasionally petty as Carmela and occasionally as critical as Carmela was totally fine with the fact that Tony is probably out many nights sleeping with other women. And that doesn't matter to her? That's strange, you know? It does sometimes, it does others. It's one of those double-edged things where I think she knows, but, like, it's like all the other stuff Tony does. She knows, but may not know the extent of it. You know what I mean? um, She knows in this lifestyle that the Gumar is a thing, that that's a thing that these guys do. It's, It's kind of part of the lifestyle. I think Carmela definitely doesn't like having her nose rubbed in it. I don't think she likes reminders of it. I think, at the very least, she expects Tony to do a good job of keeping it secret. 
and she's made her peace with it as best she could given the circumstances. But yeah, she feels that there's something more intimate and powerful about this Melfi relationship. I think, you know, and this is not a knock on Carmela because I think Carmela is m mostly a victim of really horrible circumstances throughout a lot of the show. But I think Carmela is able to get angry about the other women um, when she needs to. Yes. If that makes sense. It does, yeah, it's sure. A, it's, it's, it's like it's a, a card It's a yeah. card she can always yeah. pull to get Tony to do something that she needs him to do. At the, You know, it's like Lily and I have been watching, my wife Lily and I have been watching All in the Family lately, just a, her going back to an old sitcom. And um, when, you know, Archie just bullies Edith around constantly, but once in a while she'll stand up and, and you know, no, you have to do the right thing here. And I think Carmela has that card to play with the other women and, and so she deals with it as best she can knowing it's part of the mob culture but it's always like that trump card that she can play to like no you owe me this if they were having sex what would be fixed here would this fix a lot of their problems how much is sex mm -hmm. a part of this that's interesting i think it i think it's a big part of it because it would relate to the the functioning and the, and the happiness in their life, I guess in more honest terms, um, Chris, when he was, there was a very good deduction, I thought, of Carmela, and you use the term made her peace. Well, there's that word peace again, mm. the Roman peace. And is the Pax Soprana a deal with the devil in which you have to look the other way on certain things? You have to accept certain betrayals, certain lies. This meeting on the gangster end, the meeting with Junior, is completely staged to placate him. Is that what you have to accept in order to achieve the relative peace and prosperity? Mm. That I guess that's what comes up for wow. me when we talk mm. about this. I like that. Oof, that's brutal, though. That's brutal. That's so dark and upsetting. <laughs> and it all just—it just has to be built on a lie. Mm. Let's uh, use that as a segue, though, to get into the family family business. Junior makes it clear quickly and harshly that. He's not respecting old arrangements. He busts up the Sammy Grigio card game. He uh, they sends his goons to kill this rusty Irish guy for uh, selling drugs to the old man Capri's grandson. And um, what else did he do? He uh, Ta he taxes. <laughs> oh, he taxes Hesh. That's the big one, of course. And he taxes Hesh, who operated without tax and is one of Tony's best friends. Um, let's crack this open a little bit. What's happening here? What, what's Junior doing? How, what do we think of how the, the world is responding to the behavior of Junior? I don't know why, but I seem to sympathize with Junior a lot in this episode, even though he is the problem character. Well, he's made a fool of constantly. He's made a fool of constantly. Even in the one scene where he's getting fitted for his suit and he looks all powerful, he's pantless. Yeah. Like, it's, there's something pathetic about him even in that. I think I, I mean? feel like... I feel bad for Junior. I feel like he doesn't really have any real friends. His mm. nephew has just kind of poised him or propped him up to be the lightning rod for the family. And even though he's doing bad things, busting up that card game, you know, taxing Hesh, he's entitled to these things. He's supposed to be the boss. He doesn't know he's a fool. Yeah. He doesn't know he's a lightning rod. He's trying to do his job. And everyone around him is complaining about him to Tony, who's the actual boss. And it's kind of like you set up Junior for failure. Yeah, uh, that's a great framework, Jordan. I I really like that. And big shout out to Dominic Chinese really oh. stepping into this role. Incredible. 
And, and he's so different from this character, too. If, if you ever see him in any medium outside of the show, he's so quiet and polite. He's like a total gentleman. He doesn't, he doesn't like swearing. Let's say. Yeah. As an, um, as an older man, he's quite handsome. Oh, yeah. I think he looks good, and I think he takes care of himself. Junior kind of like, you know, always looking at the big uh, the Coke bottle glasses, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot here. Um, and to relate to Jordan's point of what Junior has a right to, even a broken clock is right twice a day, and he had his position. And uh, Junior here, to be made a fool of and to be put on the spot like this, how brilliant a writing choice that going to Green Grove to pay his respects to Livia and spend some time with her not only very clearly exposes Junior to her machinations, Mm. but exposes him to the vulnerabilities that we know about. His insecurities. Yeah. He's getting older. Even the coffee's old in here. He complains. <laughs> oh, what a good line. A really so good many lines. The, the <laughs> nice guy who... Innocent mistake. He mistakes him for a new resident. Yeah. And Junior yeah. can't even be the coy gangster. He has to yell at this old man. Yeah, move yeah. along now. Keep moving, fella. <laughs> so Keep moving. Keep moving. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and Junior... Oh, and Livia's so good at exploiting that insecurity. This is Livia at her, she, you know, she, as Junior says, she is looking to crack Tony's coyote. Hesh would not be in this episode for, if not for Livia. Yeah, well, what, what, what one thing Barely. I noticed is, like, she says to him in a very casual way that could be very conversational, don't let certain people take advantage of your good nature. Which he and doesn't have. Which, which he doesn't have. Yes, And then exactly. she proceeds to do it. And, and then he dismisses it. <laughs> he dismisses it. Like, yeah, you know, nobody got over on Johnny. He, he dismisses it. So she has to lean in. Her next line to him is, uh, how's your Jewish friend? It's like, she knows what she's doing. She, 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 <laughs> she you know what I mean? She, he didn't get it the first time, so she had to lay in a little bit further. And that's all it took. That's yeah. all it took. And then that, that sparks... The entire action of this episode on the gangster side. Could we? This is great. Um, I really like that reading, Chris. Could we lean into these first couple of scenes a little more? Because just a few of them put together, I think, constitute some of the best writing and what we're seeing and how this stuff develops on the show. The first beat, as I can recall, in this gangster storyline does not include Junior or Tony directly. Mikey Palmisi goes into the Sammy Grigio card game, mm. beats the bag out of the guy. Um, Junior Soprano's the new boss. He ain't accepting all derangements. The Sopranos does this a lot, and they really got good at it over time. They cut not to another storyline, but a different branch of the same storyline. The different branch is is Junior getting fitted for the suit. Again, there's an idea. Junior Soprano's the new boss, and there's an idea that we want a new suit. We're going to fill it with something new and vital. Junior's insecurities about being old are going to be too much of a threat. Mm -hmm. Um... He barely has his go- boss pants on yet yeah. before he starts ordering up murder mm. um, with ease. Mikey Palmisi, again, a friend of Livia, essentially, cannot shut the fuck up. As this <laughs> yeah. old man Capri's heart is breaking yeah. over the death of his grandson. Um, <laughs> the And this is another great scene. It, make no mistake, Junior is dangerous. I mean, when he looks in the mirror and says, oh yeah, what's that motherless fuck's name? You know somebody's getting hurt. This is another important thing. I think that's another great point. Is there a deconstruction happening here where not everything old school is so great? Mm. The fact that these guys were ready to murder each other at a, the drop of a hat. It's like, no, this is going to cause problems. Not to mention we're gangsters. This affects the bottom line. If we're not making money, who fucking cares which old man you helped? The end of that scene, also he looks right in the mirror, as you said, what's this motherless fuck's name? Cut directly to a medium close-up on Livia. <laughs> um, calling someone a motherfucker or a motherless fuck, if I watch Deadwood correctly, is a big insult. And when that scene cut to Livia, I thought to myself, well, maybe there are worse things than not having a mother. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> um, then she proceeds to manipulate him in that brilliant scene, which we already deconstructed. Um, another branch of the same storyline, instead of Junior holding court um, and telling Mikey Palmisi shut up, he's right under it. She's manipulating him um, throughout that scene. And I thought, this is all building this tension. We know there's going to be trouble. All these scenes are really funny. Yeah. Right? And it builds and builds. And that, that's just a few scenes. That's ten minutes, if that, yeah. put together, where this, this story is building in this way with this brilliant imagery and these laughs. Tony has a good comment to Livia uh, where he says, you know, I, I hate to see Junior make uh, some big mistakes early on. And uh, he's he's not uh, able to articulate exactly what those mistakes are, but Livia is way more keyed in than he realizes. And I, I think she's just played the situation beautifully because she is playing on Junior's insecurities in the same way that everybody else is. And the Capos all seem to know exactly what's going on with the Junior and Tony situation. They basically planned it themselves. So, again, I come back to sympathy for Junior Soprano. I, I want him to succeed because his success is tied to Tony's success. And I feel bad that he kind of gets manipulated. And um, ultimately, it comes to the right end. You know, Tony finds a, a way to uh, do this through Johnny Sack. Mm. But he has to puppet everything because when you have a puppet, you have to put on a puppet show. Everything has to be that to, to make this successful, to make this ruse successful that Junior actually came to the decision. Absolutely. I want to talk about casting for a moment here as we're getting into the gangster stuff because we were having a little chat before we started recording about how amazing some of these like actors are. Obviously, our leads are all amazing, but most notably, I mean, for, a big shout-out to Georgianne Walken and Sheila Jaff and David Chase who cast this show because it's impeccably casted. I mean, every little role they just nail. Uh, and there's a lot of very funny examples that I can think of later in the show of like one-liner parts that they just, oh, well, they pulled that guy right out of, you know, North Jersey and plug, put him <laughs> on set. And uh, God, so many great, the old man Capri was, was perfectly cast. That guy was so good. He, he really made the most of that scene. We have our first appearance of a great character, uh, Johnny Sack played by Vince Curatola, a wonderful actor. Before we get into the, some of the other uh, great casting and, and peripheral actors on this show, any thoughts on a first appearance of Johnny Sack? I thought they made Manhattan a great character, and Mr. <laughs> Manhattan himself is Johnny Sack. It's like, this is the place you go to take your wife for your 18th anniversary. <laughs> you go to the big, fancy Italian restaurant in Manhattan. Of course, they shoot the skyscrapers. Yeah. They don't shoot any like little street scenes or nothing like that to establish the restaurant. It's just... Huge big skyscrapers, it's gorgeous, and we're inside the restaurant, and here's this super cool fucking guy, Johnny Sack, sitting at the bar, and he is New York. It's a great way to give him immediate gravitas. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Right, which he then uh, relinquishes, at least in the spirit of the puppet show that Jordan referenced, in order that Junior is properly placated. Oh, and um, that scene is masterful. Masterfully done. Uh, Johnny Sack, again, with the risk of spoilers, we're going to get into all kinds of great stuff with him later on. Here it's it, it's kind of quick and muted, but we definitely get that he's a shrewd gangster. He realizes with only a couple of little cues that, Tony, you are running things. He knows. Nobody else can know. Um, and then masterfully uh, manipulates Junior. Um, in that little scene, and we know that he's else. we know that he's a charmer, and we know that he's uh, a pragmatist. He wants to help solve a problem for Tony, and and that's a that's an important uh, feature for Johnny Sack. Paul, pretty good. If there are any flies on you, Paul, they're paying fucking rent. <laughs> <laughs> another great line. A great line. Yeah, great line. Uh, another great scene. I I love these season one capo scenes with Tony and the other capos. Uh, 
uh, we were talking about this guy who plays Jimmy Altieri. I mean, that that's what a wise guy is to me. Yeah, right? just the, barely acting. That just yeah. seems like who that person is. Right, right. And Larry Boy got some real funny lines in there. Ray Curto, just the older guy. You know, it, it's it's great. I love that scene where they're all just venting to Tony about Junior in the back of Satrials. It, it really, that's one of the scenes in the show that you just feel like they they found a, a social club that wise guys hang out in and just dropped a camera in there. <laughs> and that's what, it, that's what it would sound like. Absolutely. So funny. Um, so yeah, just just shout out to the whole casting team on this show. Those those all all of these people. I know some of them are actors. Some of them are more kind of like sh- street guys that they got in the show. But like, man, really good stuff. So yeah, uh, any last uh, little thoughts on this episode before we uh, kind of bring things home, wrap it up? Um, I. I... <laughs> Uh, a notable line. I, I know Livia is kind of our scene stealer every episode here, but I love that bit where um, <laughs> the old woman is walking by when Tony comes to visit, and uh, you know they have a little conversation, and then she leans in. You know, she's a degenerate gambler. <laughs> these little, these <laughs> Livia's, and then the Gunga Din thing. Fuck, it, just so many oh, so good. Yep, not a whole bunch of time with Livia, Livia and Tony, but. I did note, I know it sounds frivolous, but we've been tracking it. Like, he, she actually liked the cookies that... Yeah. He brought the, he brought the goods. He brought the biscotti from Ferrara's in Little Italy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the, that sounds she, like... She's beyond the me. point. She's beyond the point where she has open contempt for him when he comes to visit, which is good. Because <laughs> that's where she was when we last saw her, so... Yeah. Uh, uh, well, she has other plans for her contempt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very it's true. It's a good drop-in right there. Uh, a big question for me, again, bringing it back to the question of happiness. I'm going to stay away from spoilers, but Hesh has a horse farm, and Tony loves those horses. Mm. Tony connects with animals. Animals do not make the complex demands that humans do. Tony is absolutely enchanted by the concept of a life without those headaches. No family cotsies running around. Right. Um, <laughs> simplicity and sexuality. One horse likes another horse. They go up to each other. They fuck. I think that's <laughs> what he says. And and Hesh is also part of that. Uh, when Hesh is thinking, oh, this is so bad. I might have to move to another area. Tony says to him, you leave this action. You're going to kill yourself. So these are deeper questions these guys are wrestling with. Even though, as we've noted, these are liars, thieves, killers, in some cases very antisocial people, but they're still wrestling with these deep questions as any human does or has to, and it'll make for intriguing drama over time. So I just wanted to put a feather in that as a, as a note of how much I enjoyed this episode and how we'll engage with these deep themes going forward. So two things for me. One is that I just want to say how much I enjoy Hesh as a character. What a great... Yeah, he's great. I think he's great. I think the actor is terrific. And I also just enjoy the role of Hesh. I almost see him as kind of a... Almost a mythical figure. I almost feel like the Sopranos, as the title would indicate, are almost a royal family, an empirical dynasty. And he is kind of the wizard that serves the realm. And Tony has a deep understanding of what that is and what that means and how important his role is. And why taxing the wizard is a bad idea because you don't understand the magic that he does. Mm. Likewise, I love the scene between uh, Junior and Tony at the baseball game yes. where I feel like Tony is using a Melfiism. He's using something from the door that she's opened to try to give him this high art reference. Talk to me about Octavius. Talk to me about Caesar Augustus. Talk to me about everyone eating at the table and coming up and prospering together. Junior, of course, thinks he's talking about Julius. No, I'm talking about the guy that came after that. He's trying to get him to understand the peace and prosperity for all and how that 
brings everybody up. He's trying to get him to understand the kind of things that, like, not taxing Hesh would do for the family because he <laughs> sees the bigger picture. And for me, it's kind of inspiring the start of what we'll see in later episodes and later seasons, the start of a kind of weariness in Tony. He is already a little bit frustrated and even tired with always constantly having to put on the puppet show, having to pull the strings. I think he'd rather play the mandolin. Ooh, very good. That's really great. The, the, uh, the imagery on this show that comes up there again was about how communication is very hard. And communication with all these lies and obfuscations is even harder. And that, as you said, the kind of door that's open with this kind of highfalutin imagery, this is the this is the reference in the episode's title. It doesn't work. Mm. Junior's like, I don't get it. The much cruder bullfucking imagery is yes. what works. And to bring it back to when when that gambit again works and Tony gets some of that money back, they whack it up, the captains. Mm. He gives a little bit back to Hesh. But something interesting happens. They share a moment, a little playful moment, Tony having some fun. Then he hands over the money. He says, you think I'm going to profit off of your tax? Pause. Hesh says, thought never entered my head. They're, they're, they're lying. Tony <laughs> Tony looks at the horses and he says, there's no guilt. Well, I'm going to placate my guilt. Yeah. Here's money. Did you think that I wouldn't do that? Hesh has to maintain the lie if we're going to keep this peace and prosperity going. Thought never entered my head. Yeah, and then we uh, we wrap it up here. These two separate threads kind of close uh, with that uh, lovely scene with Tony and Carmela by the pool, which uh, whatever depth and deception is going on at the time in their minds still touches me. Mm -hmm. That scene, I, I've always loved that scene. I, I love the kiss they share. And uh, it's just, it's an interesting way to close the episode because both of them left their various advisors, mentors, thinking that, their initial feelings were wrong and, and, and kind of coming together and, and forming a new uh, piece, you know, uh, a new lie agreed upon, to uh, quote another show that we love. And uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, you know, this isn't, maybe this won't hold very long, but for now, there's quiet, there's gentleness, there's a kiss by the pool. And then we get to uh, this last scene, which I love this last little sequence here, this little dinner with the guys where Junior's kind of coronation dinner, so to speak. And it uh, leaves us on quite an ominous note. Uh, they pick a great song. The song is called Paparazzi. Uh, they take just the beat from it. And, um, you know, it's like all this stuff is going on. First of all, we learn two things from this. One, uh, the feds bought the ruse. Junior's the boss as far as the feds are concerned. We see him get kind of pushed up the board. And, you know, I, I, this is just sort of an ominous reminder. It's like, don't get lost in this paradise or this peace. You know, we're watching you. This isn't, that these guys are on, these guys are outlaws and the law is coming. Yeah, the Visigoths are coming. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yes. Very cool. The very empire true. will fall. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. The, the, it's fascinating that I've watched this show now several times and I've seen this episode a number of times I still felt like a chill kind of go up my spine every time in this last sequence like what's gonna happen <laughs> it's kind of like that kind of great building of tension um, yeah in this last uh, it is fascinating that again the gambit works as you mentioned right the FBI has bought this uh, hook line and sinker but with the music and the tension and the irony of that these characters do not know that the FBI is watching over them. It's still an ominous ending. As Tony said to Melfi early on, most legit people go 100 yards out of their way not to make eye contact with me. You, you didn't flinch. Now that is the FBI. They're close. 
they're watching. Um, the episode opens with a guy, Bacazian, who can be bought off for the price of an iron. FBI, not so easy. Mm. So this is another irony that The Sopranos is great. We fight and we fight and we fight to get control of X. And even if we do, Y is looming yeah. behind. Even down to the, the these weird shots that they took, it seemed. Tony's picture on the board is him kind of like glazed over. Look, maybe had a few drinks. The cigar, I'm hanging out. Junior's eyes are like downcast, and he's looking in Tony's direction. I'm like, this doesn't, this does not make me feel good. Oh no! Well, I mean, <laughs> it's suggestive of the whole idea that you know, as far as the FBI is concerned, right now, Junior's the guy, and Tony, you know, there's there's something kind of innocent about his look in that picture. It's like maybe they skate right over that. We'll see. And this exponential threat of the government, we only had them previously as some photographers on kind of the edges of the scene in Meadowlands at Jackie's mm-hmm. funeral. I mean, now they're they're. They're, we actually see their offices. We see yeah. them physically. Yeah. Like I said, this was David Chase. To me, this is the, the showrunners saying, hey, this there's still a huge shoe left to drop. Don't don't lose sight of the fact that these are gangsters. So with that, uh, Pax Soprano, guys. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time for Down Neck. Have a wonderful time out there. Stay dry. Stay dry. Keep your basements dry. Say, girl.